man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. say about the missions and folks going out from our church on missions. So much of what the book of Galatians is about has to do with the missionary enterprise. Uh, Paul, in many ways, is defending who he is as a missionary as he's been sharing the gospel. Uh, he's defending himself against the charge that he got the message wrong. He's saying, no, in point of fact, I got the message right. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, him crucified, raised on our behalf. We are saved by grace, appropriated by faith. This is the work of the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the gospel. It doesn't change. It doesn't alter from climate to climate, person to person. This gospel is one. Uh, I've been appreciative of the music this morning. Uh, uh, I don't know about you, but I wasn't here. Uh, I, was, I was somewhere up in heaven for a little while. I think one of the most profound thoughts in the book of Revelation is that uh, John is told that the root of David, the lion of Judah, is able to conquer the world and to open the scrolls that bind up the will of God for all creation. And looking for the root of David and the lion of Judah, he turns and he sees the lamb that was slain. So precious a thought. Beloved, the only scars in heaven are his. And because his scars are there, ours won't be. And we just praise God for that. So I, I, I don't know about you. I, I'm, uh, I'm not ready to go home, and neither are you. But if we had to, I'd be okay right at this point. I hope you have your text open in front of you to the book of Galatians. I want you to see that for yourself. I'm reminded that Paul, when he was preaching in uh, the... Um, uh, area that, that we identify as, as Greece now, um, that uh, he went to the city of Philippi and there he uh, preached the gospel. The folks weren't too keen on that and so they sort of drove him out of town. And he went to the next town along the way and it was a place called Berea. And the scripture says that as he preached there that the Bereans were more noble because they searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. And that's why I want you to have the text open in front of you that you can handle it, see it, touch it, uh, feel it in your hands, even as you hear it, so that you will search the Scripture for yourself, see that these things are so that the Word of God comes into your mind. So have uh, your Scripture open before you to Galatians chapter 2. Now, I want to focus this morning eventually on verse 7. Uh, verse 7 says, On the contrary, when they saw that I'd been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, and it's simply saying there, those who were not Jewish, those who had not uh, entered into the covenant people of Israel through the right of circumcision and all that the law represents and all that. It's sort of shorthand for it, but he said, uh, entrusted uh, that I had been entrusted to the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. And that's, that's really where I want to focus when we get to that point, is that uh, God's gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't altered from one people to another. It's the same gospel, whether it's going to the Jews or whether it's going to the Gentiles. That it's not a different gospel depending on the continent. 
that when the gospel is preached, whether it is in the Hebrew, the Greek, the Latin, whether it's in the Italian, whether it's in the Romanian or the Hungarian or the German or the French or the Spanish, whether it's in English or the indigenous populations of the Americas, whether it's in the language of the Aleut Indians, the language of the Koreans, the Japanese, the Chinese, or the Indians or the Russians, it doesn't matter of all the, uh, and all the Uzbekistans and all the stands, you know, it doesn't matter what language it is. When it's translated, it all comes out to be one gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, him crucified and raised on our behalf. We are saved by grace, appropriated by faith. And so whatever the language is around the world, whatever culture, whatever people, it's one gospel. And Paul says that those who were leaders in Jerusalem recognized that I've been given this gospel. I'm taking it to those who are not Jewish. Peter had been given the same gospel. He's taking it to those who are Jewish. He says we're not in competition here. We're simply sharing the one gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's, that's sort of where the aiming point is. So along the way, just keep in mind, that's where we're going as we work through this passage of Scripture. Now, uh, first of all, I want for us to pick up sort of a strange phrase in, in verse 6. We commented on it just a little bit last week. But the, in verse 6, Paul writes, And from those who seem to be influential, it's those who seem to be influential. And he's not putting them down. He's not saying, well, they're not influential. Obviously, they were. He's just saying everybody saw it. And everybody counted them as being influential leaders in the church. So, so when I was talking to Peter and James and John, they were the pillars of the church. They, they were the ones that everybody would say, these are the leaders. These, these are the ones that you have to uh, check in with and make sure that, that the work is going all right. He says, well, um, for those who seem, from those who seem to be influential, and then he says this, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. In this great work of sharing the gospel, there are no rankings in the kingdom of God. You know, as human beings, we like titles on the door. Those of you involved with the military and, and close to the military, you know about rank. You know that uh, you know, the, the, the last name is on, on the, the nameplate and the first name is on the shoulder. Uh, you, you know that there, there's the hash marks and the medallions and the, and, and the, um, uh, the, the signia, insignia of rank throughout the, the military. We do the same thing in, in the business world. We have the titles and the, and the organizational chart and who's in charge of whom and who can tell whom what to do. Uh, we, we sort of celebrate this, this notion of ranking and privilege. But in the kingdom of God, there are no rankings. It's not as though you come in and you get to be a first-degree Christian, and then if you memorize enough Bible verses, you can become a second-degree Christian, and then if you get three merit badges, you can be a third-degree Christian, and then if you do a service project on top of the merit badges, then, you know, and work your way up to 33-degree Christian. It's not, it's not as though in the kingdom of God you're working your way up the ranking ladder. Paul said, it, it makes no difference to me because God shows no personality, uh, partiality. Now, we honor those who labor in the work of the kingdom. We honor those who have preaching ministries, and we honor those who have music ministries and teaching ministries. We thank God for those who are exceptionally talented and gifted servants of God who are able to draw the crowds into large conferences and to have the, the, the work that, that is sort of noticed and put in the papers and put on the television and on the Internet. We are so thankful for that. But before God, we all stand on level ground, and before the cross, we all stand as those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We are all creatures of grace. 
There is no ranking in the kingdom of God. Now, the good part about that is you don't have to look at anyone else and say, wow, they've got more authority and more power and, and, and God is just doing something in their life he's not doing in mine. That's the good news. The bad news is, which is actually good news, you can't say of yourself that God isn't doing a great work in my life and there's nothing he can do with me. It means that the same Holy Spirit that would work in, a great, in one of the great preachers of church history, you know, Spurgeon, the Truett, Billy Graham, I have my heroes to name today, but I won't because they'd be embarrassed. But the same Holy Spirit working in them is the same Holy Spirit working in you. And the Holy Spirit is not limited by who they are, and the Holy Spirit is not limited by who you are. There is no ranking and limitations in the kingdom of God. In the church, there are leaders. We have the pastors and the deacons. We have teachers. We have committee chairmen. We have those who, who do the, the work of the ministry in a particular and noticeable way. But each one is the work of the Holy Spirit, enabled, guided, and corrected, and reproved, led for the glory of God by the same Holy Spirit. There's a need for this kind of leadership, as there is in any gathering of human beings. But before God, we all stand as one, all of us sinners, all of us in need of grace, each of us loved infinitely by the Father, and each, in us, each of us valued infinitely by the Son. We are all the same before God. This is what James was getting at in his epistle. You remember that? He said, look, if somebody comes into the church, some rich guy comes into the church, and he's got, you know, the, all the trappings and the jewelry and the gold and, and all that. And he comes in and you're looking at him and you say, wow, we could meet budget. And so as, as he's coming into the church, you say, this, 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 this rich person is really influential. Here, let us give you the seat of honor. And then you're confused. You don't know what to give him. Because you'd think the seat of honor is the front seat, but everybody wants to sit in the back seat. So you say, well, here, sit in the back. I don't know where, where do you sit uh, uh, the seat of honor in the, uh, you know, the, there's the, the mourner's bench, the center's bench over here, Paul. <laughs> you know, so we could sit in there. But anyway, the rich guy comes into the church and, and you say, here, you know, we're so glad to see you. Let's give you the seat of honor. You know, we are privileged that you are here. James goes on to say, and then some guy comes in who's poor, and his, his clothing is a little bit torn, and it's stained, and, and you can tell that, uh, that he doesn't have very much money. And you're sort of embarrassed that he's walked in, but you sort of have an obligation to, to seat him somewhere. So you take him and you put him in the, in the one seat that nobody else would want, and so you put him on the front pew. <laughs> James says, that's nuts. He says it in Greek, so it's better, but he says, that's nuts. He says, don't you understand that God has chosen the poor in order to make them rich in the grace of God? Don't you understand that God has chosen those who have nothing, that he might give them everything? That's why this rich guy who just came in, the first thing you've got to do is convince him that his riches are dragging him down and drowning him in his self-satisfied complacency. You need the Holy Spirit to convince a rich man that he, in fact, has nothing, that all that he has belongs to the Father, that he needs to go and sell all that he has and come follow Jesus. And until he becomes poor, he cannot be rich in the kingdom of God. That's what you have to do with a rich man. A poor man, he's halfway there. So James says, don't show that kind of partiality. 
Don't be a respecter of persons. In that, in that sense, don't, don't rank people that way because God doesn't rank people. And there's not different levels of being a Christian in the kingdom of God. And so in verse 6, he says, I, I, I'm really not going to be that uh, um, impressed. I, I think Paul obviously honored uh, Peter and James and John, the apostles. I mean, surely he enjoyed what we would have enjoyed, spending a couple of weeks just listening to Peter talk about Jesus. And, you know, Peter, what was it like? You know, what, what did you do after the crowds left and the campfire was sort of glowing in, in, the, in the dying embers of the evening? What did you talk about? What was it like to, to be with Jesus? You know, just, just I'm, I'm sure he enjoyed that kind of thing, but it wasn't a ranking. It wasn't a, oh, these guys are somehow super Christians and you, Paul, are second-degree Christian and everybody else is just sort of plebeian. Christians or, or something of that nature. Um, the, uh, there's no partiality. And so Paul says, I, I, who they were, it didn't matter to me. It didn't matter to me because it didn't matter to God. Uh, God shows no partiality. See, the odd thing is, God happens to be sovereign Lord of the entire universe, and he uses the people he chooses. He uses the people he chooses. So you need a king? You need a king for the nation of Israel. You need a king who will reign in power. You need a king who will, who will set the course of the nation and the path it ought to go. Let's go find a little shepherd boy. You need a prophet. You need someone to proclaim boldly the word of God. Let's go find a young man, Jeremiah, and we'll let him be the prophet of God. You need someone to be a disciple of Jesus, someone who will handle rightly the, the word of God, someone who will proclaim this, this marvelous, wonderful gospel. Let's go get a gruff fisherman and call a Peter into being a disciple of Jesus Christ. You want someone to guide the church, to bring to the church the glory of, of the scriptures and the meaning of the gospel and set it down for generations to read? Let's go find someone who is a murderer who persecutes the church. Let's get an apostle Paul. You see, God uses odd people, and he uses them for his glory. And so when Paul says, it doesn't matter to me, I'm, God shows no partiality, he was simply recognizing the absolute sovereignty of God to use whom he chooses, and to use him in the manner that glorifies God to the heights. And so that's sort of our lead-in this morning, is, is that this authentic gospel is a gospel given to every believer in Jesus Christ. And that every believer in Jesus Christ is valuable and, 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 and worthwhile to God. And that every believer in Jesus Christ is being used in God's design. So that, that's sort of the run-in. It makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. The very end of verse uh, 6, Paul writes, Those, I say, who seemed influential. What is that, about the third time he said it? He said, added nothing to me says, they didn't change my gospel. They didn't tell me I'd missed something. They didn't try to uh, improve what I was saying. They didn't tell me I got the, the emphasis in the wrong spot. They added nothing to me, Paul says. On the contrary, this is verse 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter, now by the way, that word he is not open to doubt or question. It's a pronoun, but we know what the antecedent is. It is God. And so we could read it, for God who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine, for my apostolic ministry to the Gentiles. And so Paul's just recognizing that they went to the, the Jews, I went to the Gentiles. Now let's make some 
uh, historical observations here, first of all. Does this mean that there were two Gospels? A way to vary the appeal to different audiences? Does this mean when you're preaching to Jews, you have to say it one way to try to get them in the kingdom? And when you're preaching to Gentiles, you have to say something else so that they might be interested in the kingdom? Do you have to rework what the, what the gospel is all about? Are there, are there different gospels? I mean, even today you hear people saying you need, you, you need to change the gospel if you're going to reach people. I'm, I'm just baffled by the number of, of secular non-believers who keep lecturing the church and telling us, you have to change your message or people will quit coming to church. If you keep talking about Jesus as Lord, they're going to quit coming to church. If you keep saying he's the way, the truth, and the life, they're going to quit coming to church. If you say there's salvation, no other name but his, they're going to stop coming to church. I mean, I'm, I'm really amused by that. What do they think happened in the first century when the church got started? God sent out his disciples and the apostles into a world, a world that was saying constantly, Kaiseros, Kurios, Caesar is Lord. Absolutely, Caesar is Lord. And into this milieu, into this context in which everybody is saying, Caesar is Lord, along come these Christians who are saying, Jesus Christos, Kurios, Jesus Christ is Lord. You thought it was Caesar. It's Jesus Christ who is Lord. Talk about being out of step with your community. I'm sure they had well-meaning non-believers say, you know, you need to change your message. This Jesus is Lord is not going to sell in the Roman Empire. I'm sure they came and said, you know, you need to change your message on morality. We live in a society that is open we live in a society in which you satisfy the desires and the lusts of the flesh. We live in a society in which you do what pleases you. As long as you don't make the gods happy and they cause a drought or a plague or a famine or something like that, but, it, but as long as you don't make the gods angry, we really don't care what you do. And you're going to come in and tell us that God wants to be Lord and sovereign over every area of your life, that God wants to be Lord over your mind and your thoughts, and God wants to be Lord over your body. He wants to be Lord over your desires and your appetites. He wants to be Lord over your relationships and your society. You're going to come in and tell this Roman, Greco-Roman world that God is sovereign over everything you do and all that you are belongs to him. You have to live something called a holy life. Get with it. If you preach that message, nobody will come to your church. And all that happened was that God brought in those whom he had chosen from the foundation of the world. All that happened was that the church sprung up in the, hot, in, in the garden bed of the, fed by the blood of the martyrs. All that happened was that the body of Christ rose up and became more and more prominent. All that happened was that the word of Jesus Christ spread out from some forgotten backwater corner of the Middle East and spread to the whole known world. All that happened is that this name of Jesus is now proclaimed and proclaimed as Lord all around the world today. That's all that happened when they were true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when those voices come along and say, you need to change the gospel, you need to alter what you're saying, you, you need to get with the times and fit your message to what people's sensitivities are, here's my answer to that. There's no greater need a person has than Jesus Christ. And there's no greater need than a society, that a society has other than to be completely surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ. There's no human life lived better than a life lived in the holiness of God. 
I mean, the gospel doesn't need to change. It's people who need to be changed by the gospel. And so the first observation we make is that Paul's not saying, well, I was given one gospel that was tailor-made to the Gentiles. Peter was given another gospel tailor-made for the Jews. No, it's one gospel sent out, one to the one place, one to the other place. Now, the other thing I want you to notice is that when Paul says that he was sent to the Gentiles, Understand that every city he went to, when he got there, the first place where he preached Christ was in the synagogues. We know this from the book of Acts. He would go into a town, he'd find a group of of Jews, he'd find a group of, of, of those who had known the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Going to the synagogue, sometimes he had to go down by the riverside if there weren't enough uh, men to form a minion and have an actual synagogue. He'd go by the river, that's where the Jews would meet, that's where he met Lydia. And he would go where the, where the Jews were gathered. And he would preach Christ first to the Jews because they were the ones who had the scriptures. They had the oracles of God. Those were the ones who had been waiting for the Messiah forever. Those were the ones who would understand the context in which the God of Israel was bringing forth this marvelous work of salvation in Jesus Christ. These are the ones who knew the Old Testament, had the background, had the the context in which they could understand. So Paul would preach first to the Jews and then in doing so preach to those Gentiles who were God-fearers who agreed with what the Jews were teaching about the one true and living God but had not become Jews themselves. And from there he would go in and preach to the Gentiles. So when Paul says, I've been sent to the Gentiles, it's not like he said, well, wait, uh, would all the Jews please leave the room, please? I'm not allowed to preach to you. He preached to everybody. He preached to every person. And by the way, Peter, Peter was the first person to preach to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 10. He went to the home of Cornelius. Cornelius was a Gentile. He was a God-fearing man. And when Peter preached to him, the Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius and his whole household. There was evidence of the Holy Spirit come upon them. And Peter said, well, and you know, how can we deny these folks baptism? Obviously, the Holy Spirit has fallen upon them. So Peter was the first to preach to the Gentiles, and Paul himself would preach to the Jews, and yet Paul had given the ministry to the Gentiles and Peter to the Jews. I have lost track of where the Jews and Gentiles are, but in the illustration of my hands and where they are, you understand what I'm getting at. See, it wasn't, it wasn't as though they sat down and pulled out a National Geographic map and a blue pencil and started dividing up the world. Here, you preach on your side of the line, I'll preach on my side of the line. No, it was simply an observation of the way God was using them. It was simply an observation of how God was employing them in the work of, sh- uh, of sharing and spreading the gospel. And, and so Paul said, I'm, I'm, I preach to the Gentiles. But obviously the Jews are included. Peter would have said, I preach to the Jews, but obviously the Gentiles are included because it's just one gospel. We've each been given a a particular role in that. It's important for us to see how this uh, happens in in verse 8. When Paul says, he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry, when God worked to bring Peter up out of a fishing boat, and set him out to be a fisherman. When, when that happened, the one who did that in Peter's life is the same person who worked in me and through me for my ministry, my apostolic sending to the Gentiles. He said it was all the work of God. It is his design. You see, in the body of Christ, there are many gifts. 
There are many things that need to be done and many gifts whereby the Holy Spirit accomplishes those things. Paul wrote about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 7. Let me put that in front of you. Uh, there Paul writes this. He says, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. By now, half of you have already marked in your margins that this is the Trinity going on right there. The Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ, and God the Father in that, in that context. But Paul says there's, there's a variety of things done, but the same God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, accomplishes it all. And he says to each one, to everyone, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Then in Ephesians, Paul says, And God has given apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds or pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So there are many things to do and many roles to play and many gifts to exercise. But it's just the one God working in our midst. Now, uh, you know, we talk a lot about gifts these days. Um, I wasn't raised... Uh, talking about gifts. You know, I, I know the, the theology of it, and I know why we're doing it today. But uh, so often today what happens is, do you know what your spiritual gift is? Well, let's take an inventory, sort of like a, a personality inventory. But, but, you know, what do you like to do? What are you talented to do? What do you like to do? And, and uh, what are you really good at? And once you distill it, oh, this is your gift. What you're good at, what you're talented at, this is your gift. And what everybody does is they take their gift and they say, do you need my gift? No, well, I can just sit here and do nothing. You need my gift? You don't need my gift? Fine. I don't need to be here. When I was growing up, we didn't teach gifts. We taught responsibility. Let me tell you how you can know what your gift is. Look around you. See what needs to be done. Pray that God will give you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the ability to do it, and then do it. Amen. And that is your gift. You know, you know and, and that, that's what Paul is getting at here, is that it is the Holy Spirit that, that empowers and enables and makes it possible for, for Peter and Paul to have, have ministries that, that, that have different emphases, but the one gospel, it's the one Lord, the one, the one Christ, the one Holy Spirit working in them together all at the same time. And so um, we, we all have a gift, but it's called the gift of the Holy Spirit. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can do what needs to be done. So Paul says, they recognize. When I went to Jerusalem, I told them what I was preaching. They didn't add anything to my gospel. They said, yeah, fine, we're, we're, we're with you. That's exactly what we're preaching. He said, but we just recognized that I was preaching to Gentiles and that Peter was preaching pr uh, primarily to Jews. We're not excluding anybody here. It's just it happens to be this is the ministry I have, that's the ministry you have, and it's all for the glory of God working together. It says God has planned this thing out. Now let me make just a, a few observations about that. Um, first off is that there are different roles, gifts, and tasks, but one gospel. There are different tasks and roles. There's different styles, different ways to sing music. There's different ways to construct the, the worship service. There's different ways to construct the sermon. You go to school and seminary, you learn about, I think it's about five or six or seven different ways to put a sermon together. You should be glad I've forgotten all but one of them. <laughs> there's a lot of different styles, but there's only one gospel. 
there's only one gospel. And unless you proclaim Jesus Christ, the rest of it just doesn't matter. Unless you're proclaiming that, that the Lord Jesus Christ, him crucified, raised on our behalf, you're not proclaiming the gospel. So, but there's a lot of different roles to do that and, and ways to do that. So there's a lot of things that need to be done, a lot of, a lot of people to be reached, a lot of different um, places where people are in life. Uh, and so that's the first observation. But the second ob- observation is this. Every believer has a role to play in order to fulfill the task. Every believer in Jesus Christ has a role to play. There's something that God wants you to be doing for his glory. And thirdly, there's no task that is greater or lesser than another. I mean, we think that way in our minds, don't we? We think, oh, the, the guy up front, he's, he's preaching the gospel and he's teaching the word, and wow, isn't, isn't that impressive? I could never do that. Look, you can do all kinds of things I can't do. There's a ton of stuff you can do that I can't do. There's a lot of you who know how to change diapers, and I'm not admitting that I know how to do that. (laughs) But you you can go into your home in a way that I can't. I mean, you could invite me into your home. I could sit down in the living room, get all your little kids around, and and I tell you, they would just be enthralled with me. Your little preschoolers would stop everything they were doing. They would just listen uh, to me, you know. And I, I can go down there, and I can say, you know, well, little boys and girls, you know, you need Jesus. Yes, didn't know that. And they, just, they would just flock to Christ. If I, yeah, okay. You can go into your homes in a way I can't. Dads, you can be in your home every day in a way that I can't. Dads, you can be in front of your children putting Christ on display in a way that some TV evangelist or some conference leader or some author of books or some, some media specialist in a way that we never can. You can be in front of your children showing them day to day in the trenches of life what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. You can do that and no one else can. There are places you can go that those who are so-called stars in the church can't go. You go into your place of work. We can't get in there. We don't have the security clearance. And if we did have the clearance, we'd get in there, we wouldn't have the credibility. But you're the only person who can go into your place of work and day after day after day after day put on display the Lord Jesus Christ, put before a lost world what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Let them figure out that there's a difference in your life, not because you're telling them, but because you're living it in front of them. That's a place you can go that a Peter and a Paul and a James and a John could not go. You can go out into places in the world and you can be on mission for Christ in places that others simply cannot go. They just cannot get there. So let's not be saying that somebody has a a big ministry and somebody else has a small ministry or this this is an important ministry and this is a not-so-important ministry. I mean, what part of the body of Christ are you going to lop off? Which part of the body of Christ are you going to say, you're not important to me? Which part of the work of the gospel are you going to say, God doesn't really need that done? So there, there is a multitude of work that needs to be done. There's a multitude of people that God has called to do it. And every one of us is responsible for our obedience in that equal calling to God's uh, work in the kingdom of Christ. And so... Um, you're, you're in places where nobody else can be. And just as God may have given to one a ministry to proclaim the gospel 
in downtown Washington, D.C., and to another he's given the place of proclaiming the gospel in the suburbs of Waldorf, and to somebody else to proclaim the gospels in northern Virginia. On and on it goes. We're all called to that mission work in that sense. Well, let's, let's finish this out in verse 9. And when James and Cephas, Cephas is another word for Peter, uh, when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, he keeps saying that, you know, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now up in uh, verse 6, he said, they added nothing to me. And in verse 9, he said, but they gave me the hand of fellowship. They didn't change the gospel I was preaching, but they reached out so that we could be in, in unity, that we would be united and as one in this gospel work. They didn't try to change what I was doing. They wanted to be a part of it through the fellowship of prayer and support. They wanted us all to work together in this thing. Though it had different directions geographically, yet we were together and one in doing it. Oh, let's pray for one another. Let's challenge one another and pray for one another and encourage one another that we would be doing the work of sharing the gospel. Now, why is it we don't do this? Why is it so hard for us to understand that God has given us a ministry, each one of us, in some place where no one else can go? I think it's hard for us to do that because we're just plain afraid. We just have fear. We're afraid that God will leave us in the lurch. We're afraid we're going to get out on a limb and not, not have the words to say. We're afraid that we're going to advance the, the gospel of Christ and then the, the, the flaws of our lives will be discovered. We're afraid. But let me tell you, you have the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God inhabits your heart. And in your heart, that Holy Spirit is working to give you the words you need to say. And look, if you say the wrong words by the grace and the will of God, that Holy Spirit just changes them before they get to the other person anyway. The Holy Spirit able to use a flawed, broken, stumbling, sinful vessel like a, a clay pot to set forth the treasure and the gold of Jesus Christ. It's hard for us because we're inattentive, we're jealous of others. We're, uh, I think the biggest reason is we just want to dabble in Christianity. We don't want to be sold out to Christ. The biggest reason is, is we want Jesus to be Lord of the edges of our lives. And we don't understand that Jesus is our life. He's at the very heart of our life. He consumes every part of our life. We just want to dabble. So here's what I find in the passage. The Father uses every believer in unique ways to advance the gospel. We are called to be faithful in the place where we live, where we work, where we play, and that we are to be an encouragement in supporting and praying for other believers as they too are on mission for Christ. Um, it's just an amazing work of the grace of God. It's not anything we would have designed. But when you see it, you can't help but give him the glory and the praise for it all. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we know that this task of sharing the gospel is way beyond us. We know that the task of putting Christ on display in our lives in such a way that he is seen and we are not is just beyond us. We know that having the words in order to persuade others and present the gospel in a, in a, in a real and, and forthright way is beyond us. 
But Father, we know that with you think all things are possible and that in you the Holy Spirit is sent to us that we might be found faithful. And so my prayer this morning is that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us, galvanize us for the work of the ministry, that we would share Christ in word and in deed with the world around us. Father, for the person here today who doesn't know what I'm talking about, doesn't have the foggiest notion what it means, Jesus is Lord, I pray for the work of your Spirit. Convict the heart, bring them to the cross. Father, let this be the hour. I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. true song.